0: is a CNIB foundation podcast. The content in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. CNIB does not make guarantees about the comprehensiveness or accuracy of the content. CNIB and the podcast participants assume no responsibility for how you use the information provided. If you require legal advice about a specific issue, contact a lawyer or community legal clinic.
1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the CNIB's Know Your Rights podcast. My name is Jacob Cherandoff, and today I'm joined by Jason Mitchell, a crown attorney and guide dog handler. Guy Carrier, a university student and guide dog handler, as well as Patty Ellis, a retired teacher and guide dog handler. And I have to say, I'm really excited to learn a lot from our participants today about guide dogs and their experience with knowing their rights. And Patty, I'd love to start with you and know a little bit more about your story.
0: Well, first of all, hello. Um, I, uh, I've had a guide dog for 40 years. I started with one at university and went through as I became a teacher, a high school English teacher, and then eventually um, uh, married and became a mom. And I had a guide dog all the way through. And um, I got uh, this dog in um, uh, 2016, and his name is Quincy. He's a golden retriever, um, a real powder puff, cream puff of a dog, very sucky and sweet and gentle. Um, and. Um, Yes, um, I have had many instances of discrimination, and my attitude is always, we can work this out. We can talk, and we can make things happen, because most of the time people just don't understand, or they think they understand a little, and I'm, but there's some confusion. So usually we can work it out. I had an instance uh, 20 years ago that was resolved in court a week before my marriage. <laughs> um, which was, uh, dealing with the church and the refusal, uh, for me and my dog to attend, um, a, a baptismal ceremony. And, um, it had been the second time I'd had a problem with them. So then, um, the first time was at at the marriage of the people who were now having the baptismal ceremony. And, um, you know, the first time I didn't do anything about it, but I, I think it's Oprah Winfrey that always said something, I uh, don't deal with it the first time, it'll come back and bite you in the butt, sort of. I guess it. I was forced to do something the second time. My girlfriend, who was deaf, was marrying another young man who was deaf, and so the family was obviously having the ceremony at their church, and um, I was supposed to sit in the front row with my dog I have a friend had a, a friend with me, and we were going to be looking after uh, my girlfriend's two-year-old child, who was the ring bearer. <laughs> Let's just say that when we entered the church a little early for the ceremony, uh, that was the wedding ceremony that I should have responded to and didn't, um, we, we were met with uh, a woman uh, shouting at us and uh, waving a broom and telling us that the big boss, she was trying to explain that God did not like animals in the church, that they were dirty. We checked it out with the priest beforehand, but once he spoke to this woman, uh, she changed her mind rather he cha- she, he changed his mind rather abruptly and said, "No, you can't bring the dog in." Um, and um, and then it, uh, I didn't do anything about that at that time other than we managed to negotiate that I sat way out in one of the transepts of the church far away. And the woman stood in front of me, facing me with her arms out from her sides as if she was warding my evil dog away. (laughs) It was kind of, it was very embarrassing. However, that I didn't do anything about that. It wasn't until the year later when my girlfriend said, I want you to come to the baptism. And um, I want you to um, know two things. The good news is it's a different church. The bad news is, same priest. And so my, uh, at that time my husband, who was not my husband, it was our third date, I believe. We spent it at the police station, <laughs> and he still married me, so it was not so bad. We put it, launched a complaint, and he pled not guilty because he said that his church was a, a special. A club, and they could exclude people if they needed to on religious grounds, but it was a public building, and the judge uh did fine him
1: okay wow um it sounds like you 've been through uh, the mill with this jason i am curious to know what your thoughts are um regarding patty's uh story um as as a lawyer and correct me if i 'm wrong, also use a guide dog is that correct
2: i do i've uh, 'm currently on my Fifth guide
1: dog. Wow. Yeah. What are the kind of legal obligations? Sound like there was a um, you know a verdict that came from it, but what are the obligations of uh, an institution uh, to accommodate guide dogs um, for those who require them to uh, you know function?
2: In terms of the legal framework, yeah. So a public institution does have, and we've talked about this before. I know in the last podcast we did together a duty to accommodate and people with a guide dog have to be treated equal and have equal access to anyone else in society. So essentially that means that a public facility or service provider, anyone providing a goodness service has to um, provide equal access to someone with their guide dog. So for example, there's a couple different ways we can see that. The main legislation is the Ontario Human Rights Code. And that gives everyone a legal remedy to basically sue as an individual to take the public entity uh, or the goods and service provider to court if they don't provide access with um, for your guide dog. And essentially they have the duty to accommodate up until the point of what's called undue hardship, which is another legal term of art, which basically means that the company has to show grave economic hardship to the point of almost you know bankruptcy or financial ruin or some type of health and safety issue. So the the, the Human Rights Code is probably the the main body, but there's also um, a little-known law in Ontario uh, from many years ago that's still on the books called the Blind Person's Rights Act. And that basically provides equal access to goods and services um, for people with guide dogs, and um, specifically guide dogs. And so... Essentially, what that act allows one to do is go to the police and let's say there someone's being denied access to some public good or service. Um, They can then call the police can come and actually um, lay a charge and the person could could be subject to fines if, if found guilty but there are some loopholes. For example, if you're sharing a residence where you have a shared kitchen and or a bathroom, Mm -hmm. let's say you're renting a room in a house, you're sharing a kitchen and or a bathroom, that homeowner could legally exclude your guide dog um, because it's not considered a private dwelling and it's like you're living in their house. So There's a slight loophole in in legislation, but other than that, uh, if you're in a private dwelling, like an apartment or a self-contained unit with its own kitchen and bathroom, um, your dog has to be accommodated. And the other, the other, uh, of course, the framework is the AODA. It basically does not give one the right to sue as an individual, but can launch a complaint with uh, the government entity if they're not being accommodated. And uh, then we go to uh, an enforcement mechanism uh, to that could levy fines against the business or the entity. So essentially, I'd say that the, the, the main legislation is the Human Rights Code, which... Um, is, which has supremacy over any other legislation unless another legislation says that it has supremacy. So, for example, the AODA states that if another legislation has better protection, then that legislation is the one that supersedes. So, so it's kind of a hodgepodge of, I would say, three main acts, which is the Ontario Human Rights Code, the Blind Persons Rights Act, and the, and the AODA, which collectively guarantees uh, equal access for folks with guide dogs. Another one I should mention that I personally have used is the City Licensing uh, Commission. Um, Restaurants, barbershops, et cetera, um, in the City of Toronto, for example, all have to be licensed through the city. And if they're denying one's access with their guide dog, one could go to um, city bylaw enforcement. And they could essentially, that business could have their license suspended if they're not complying.
1: Wow, I I am uh, I'm learning a lot about this episode. Um, thank you, first of all, Patty. Thank you for sharing. Um, I'll have some more questions in a few minutes for you. Um... Jason, I just wanted to um, clarify a couple things um, that you've mentioned. Um, we we tend to talk a lot about undue hardship here, and it seems to be the the topic of every uh, episode here. And I think it's really important to keep reinforcing this uh, because it is such a crucial concept um, to understand. But you know, I didn't know about um, the fact that you could actually lay charges. Um, on somebody for is it specifically guide dogs? Or are there other kind of um, residuals of that that you know this act does cover?
2: So, the, so it's a very short act, but it's it's specifically dealing with guide dogs and guide dog access. It basically allows for the for you to call the police and for them to actually lay a charge uh, against the individual who is failing to provide the access for the dog. I know that I think Patty in one of her... I know it will. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to turn that over to Patty because she's actually had personal experience with
1: it. How did you know about um, this to, to call the police in the first place?
0: Well, first of all, because I, I'm a high school teacher and because I'm interested in in um, all kinds of different things and have been involved with advocacy with CNIB and other things, I've kind of kept my ear to the ground. And I'm part of Guide Dog users of Canada organization and we do a lot of advocacy and 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 help with people in addition to other, all the other things we do with education etc about guide dogs but in 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 my situation I I knew about the Blind Persons Rights Act probably originally through CNIB but when I went to the states to leader dog um, for the blind where I got my dog all my dogs when I received my graduation documentation with uh, my ID, on the back of it was the Blind Person's Rights Act, which was very kind of them to do that. I also did make the charges in the situation in accordance with the uh, uh, violation of the Blind Person's Rights Act. But the bottom line on that one is you're not charging them. You are a witness for the crown, right? So the police charge them if they choose to do so. And the first officer we saw the night with the church, it was a Sunday evening when I went in there. And he sort of, oh, well, Barry, you know, why don't you, you could come back tomorrow at business hours. And then this other officer came running out of her office and said, did I hear correctly? <laughs> and then she was so angry, even more angry than I was about it. And um, so she helped us fill out the statement and got things going in that situation. That was 20 years ago, the most recent one. It was much more easy to get Compliance uh, from the police.
1: I wanted to kind of um, focus a little bit um, on Gee here, who's also had some some issues regarding um, his guide dog. So, welcome to uh, the show, Guy So, first of all, what's the name of your guide dog?
3: Uh, so, my dog's name is Dixon. Um, we've been together for four years now. Uh, he is my first guide dog. I'm not uh, not as well versed in the world of guide dogs as uh, Jason and uh, Uh, Patty, but i i I definitely i speak my mind when i need to
1: i understand that you had some issues with i guess an academic institution and a guide dog would you mind sharing a little bit about your experience with that and how how things kind of progress through that i I think it's a really interesting topic to dive into
3: yeah for sure and um yeah definitely i'll I'll break it down just to Put it into context just to you see understand how chaotic it really was. Um, so this was last September um, I was in my third year of my degree and um, I think about is about two weeks into the semester like fresh into, in September um, I had gotten a call and I was scheduled to have some back surgery uh, shortly thereafter um, and I think it was the last day I was there before I went off leave for my surgery. Um, I received a phone call from the accessibility services office, um, which was really, really unnerving because, um, it was my advisor and she had me on speakerphone and she was sitting in a room, having a meeting with a lot of management and other people in that, in that respect. Um, and she says, "Yeah, we have a student that's here, and he uh, he has a severe allergy, and he's asthmatic, and um, you know he's he can't be in the same room as you and your dog." It was quite the bombshell. So at that point, I really, I said to that, basically, I said, "Well, you know, what? I said I'm going to be gone for several weeks. Um, I said, well, let's let's reconvene then. We'll we'll try and sort this out." Mm-hmm. So I I went off and I had my surgery and I had a successful recovery. Everything went great. Um, And then when we went back to hit the books, um, the institution really didn't have anything in place at that point um, that would, that would really solve this, this issue of of competing rights. Um, Mm -hmm. So what we essentially did for a period of time was we would alternate attendance. Um, You know, now, given with with COVID and everything like that. Everybody's on Zoom. So we were on Zoom before it was popular.
1: You were a trailblazer.
3: We would alternate. So one day I would be in class and then the next day he would be in class and then the the opposing person would chime in with Zoom. Um, So we did this for a number of months um, with a lot of pleading for for a better solution uh, between ourselves and even our faculty. Um, cause the technology just wasn't adequate. Um, you know, it was like a, it had a, the microphone was, was built into the desk, into the computer in the room. Um, and if the professor wasn't standing directly beside the computer, you could hardly hear anything. Um, if you had any communications from other students, you couldn't hear anything whatsoever. They made an attempt to relocate our class to a larger space. They thought that with the attempt of putting in some air purification units and providing a larger space that maybe we can coincide in the same room together. And after about 15 minutes, I believe, um, he had to leave under uh, obvious medical distress. So that didn't work. So we we, we went back to Zoom and uh, we did that right through until Christmas break. And at that point, I was, I was no longer getting any communication from management and uh, people who were in charge of departments. You know, They weren't responding to my requests or not. they weren't answering my questions. Uh, they're, all communication had just stopped. So at that point, I said, okay, I said, enough's enough. And I, I took it to the public with, with the other students' consent as well. So we went to the local media to share our story. Because at that point, the the institution was just basically acting like a bully. And they did have at one point, they did suggest to him, I don't remember how late into the term it was, but he did receive one piece of information at one point where they basically said, well, maybe it would be in your best interest to change programs or to go to a different establishment. So we, we went, we went to media, we were, we broadcasted it in local papers. it even went on to CBC. Um, it was, as far as I remember, it was, it was broadcast all across the country, which is great. Um, and it's not, to, it's not to shame anybody, but it's just to make the, everybody aware because a lot of times situations like this happen and nobody's aware of it. Nobody knows this stuff goes on. So that was, that was the premise behind doing that. Um, and Shortly thereafter, we had a meeting with the university president, and lo and behold, they came up with a much, much more feasible <laughs> so solution. Let me ask you
1: a question here, and um, I'm not sure if you're able to disclose this. But just out of curiosity, what was the, the accommodation?
3: In a nutshell, it was going to be very similar to how it was prior. Uh, the only difference was they had moved to a new a new classroom that had much, much more technology. Like this room was completely riddled with microphones and cameras and we were supposed to, again, rotate attendance. Uh, however, the other student was very, very gracious uh, and he said that he didn't feel as though he needed to be in the room to be able to absorb what he needed. Uh, so he opted to to go into the opposing room on a full-time level uh, to allow me and my dog to be in class with the rest of the class. Okay. which is very nice of him.
1: Yeah, very, very nice. I can only imagine how physically and emotionally exhausting um, that was to go through. So uh, I'm glad that it
3: definitely was a positive outcome. I I just want to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, you said it really perfectly yourself. People don't know that things like this and other kind of issues within the scope of uh, being properly accommodated and having equal and equity in our and our day-to-day lives is not. Always met. And I think it's because there's a lot a lack of understanding on how to properly accommodate people. So getting this information out on a public basis for the um, blind and low vision community and all other communities that you know, have visible and invisible difference is crucial, but also to the general public so that they know and understand and are educated about how to best support those who require any type of personalized support. So thank you all for this. And I guess what I'm curious is in Jason's um, thoughts on this circumstance and, you know, from an academic institution, I mean, we've spoken a lot about, you know, undue hardship, which is our favorite word on this, on this episode, but is there anything that could have been done more expeditiously by the institution? There's two things. It
2: sounds like there's a lot of foot dragging on the institution's part, because obviously they could, they were able to accommodate Guy and the other person without going bankrupt <laughs> or without having to shut their doors or without having someone having serious health or safety issues. So obviously that solution was always there. They had to just be pushed to do it. Now, the interesting thing about Gee's case is that the... Other way one can resolve disputes, which is the informal, non-legal way, is go to the media. And arguably speaking, he got a much better result in a much quicker way than if he'd gone the legal route. Because as we all know, the legal route takes a lot of time. If you're going to the uh, human rights tribunal, that can take years. And you may have to hire a lawyer and a lot of money. Um, Sometimes so you just, have to look at the optics, right? Yeah, so if, if you want to go optics the legal were route... Bad. So, sometimes the the route that that, that, that Guy took is actually um, the road less traveled in a way that, you know, you're not going to have to wait years after you've already graduated to get your solution after the fact you can get your solution while you're still there being mm-hmm. a student. So I, I, I commend Guy for what he did. I think it's, uh, it's very smart. And because he can't wait to go, you know, two years later to go to court and get a, an apology and some money. He has to be accommodated right then and there to take his class. So it just goes to show that not all solutions are quote unquote strictly legal ones. They can be, there can be other ways to persuade those in power to do what we need them to do.
1: Yeah, I think and, you very well, Patty. It's uh, definitely sometimes an optics issue that uh, kind of pushes the, the, the ball into the, the appropriate court. Um, and so- that's
0: kind of what happened in my situation with the tow truck uh, driver.
1: Let's segue right into that because it seems to uh, be a natural flow into this, and I think uh, our viewers and listeners are probably very curious as to um, what the second uh, second story you have for us, Patty, is.
0: I had a brand new guide dog, uh, so he was 16 months old and very bouncy and, uh, and young, but an extremely well-behaved dog and, and in harness. Night and day, when you put the dog in harness, he's got his little uniform on, and he was focused. So my husband and I were on our way home from uh, a medical appointment in downtown Toronto, and the traffic, as everybody knows who lives anywhere near the GTA, let alone in it, can be horrendous. And we were moving along at a very, very slow pace through the what we refer to in our house as the Don Valley Parking Lot on the Don Valley Parkway, and we were... It was 34 degrees. We were in a very ancient Jetta. Uh, This is important to mention, with no air conditioning, with the dog at my feet. And suddenly there was a sound, and it was basically that something was dragging on the road from underneath our vehicle, creating sparks. So we got off the road very fast, and we called the roadside assistance uh, company that we had a membership to. And, um, they said they would send a tow truck operator, uh, a driver out right away. And they did. So when he, the driver arrived, I heard, well, my husband got out of the, the car, went, spoke to him and the driver said, oh, no problem. I can take you and your wife. And he walked around the car, the front of the car to speak to me. And I had my door open and he looked in and saw the dog and said, oh, Oh, no, I, I can't take the dog, though. The dog won't be able to come. I explained. I said, see this? These harnesses on him. Um, he's a guide dog, and he's specially trained. And I, you know, went through that because I thought maybe perhaps the man was afraid of dogs because some people are, you know. And I said he'd ride on the floor. He doesn't, and, and he's not interested in anybody but me. I said, see, he's looking at me, those big brown eyes, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> so anyway. But he said, well, I can't take the dog. I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, because somebody else might get into my truck, somebody else who's driving it, or maybe a passenger, but they might be allergic. And uh, I said, okay, well, that's that's considerate of you, but do you have an allergy? And he said, oh, no, 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 I don't don't have uh, any allergies. He said, I need to call the head office. Uh, that was his head office of his tow truck company, I guess, not, not the uh, roadside assistance company. So he phoned his boss, and he was in his truck quite some time, and then he came back. Oh, and I mean I in the meantime, a police uh, car had come up behind us to kind of keep us safe because we were right up against a, a, some type of rail, so you couldn't really get out of the car. So we were in this in the car with the door partially open. Uh, at any rate, so he came out from talking to his boss and he came around and he told my husband and the police officer by, who by now was standing there that he himself had an allergy and it, it was very, very bad allergy, he said. I couldn't so very severe and that he could not take the dog in his vehicle. The police officer came and said, well, he can't take you because I said, no, I'm not. You, you missed the beginning of this. I said that the man does not have an allergy, and um, we need to do something about it. And the police officer said, well, first of all, he has to stay here while he calls you another tow truck. And we waited and waited. So I said to the police officer, well, why don't we charge him? Have him? And the officer said, you know, I'd really love to do that because this is not right. And he said, but in my 18 years, I've never come across this before, so I'm not sure what I would charge him under. And I said, well, I just happen to have just the thing. So I opened my wallet and uh, pulled out my little card that I would got from my leader dog's thing. And I said, have a read. And he read it and he said, good, I'm on it. And he went back to his car and the driver Uh, was charged. We did eventually get a ride home. Uh, The next driver arrived, as I said, it was bad traffic, at 4.30 that afternoon, and we arrived at home by 7 because we were heading north from Toronto, and everybody knows what that's like on 400. So it was a long day, and the second tow truck driver was very helpful and got us a snack. The story came out on the news the man was charged. He did lose his job. I got a call from roadside assistance who called me and said, look, we're really sorry this happened. Uh, What can we do? We're thinking of making a video and educating all of our tow truck drivers on uh, how to deal with persons with disabilities. They asked me if I would like to volunteer to do it. And I said, I'd be very willing to help, but I assume there'll be some remuneration because it's going to take, a fair bit of time when they described what they would be doing. And that was indeed what happened. I felt badly that the truck driver lost his job over it. So his employers stood up for him at the beginning and said, tell this story. But when the optics got bad and the news was involved, they dumped him.
1: I mean, I think that's such a, such an interesting outcome. From the story, um, obviously the um, the situation with the the tow truck driver and the organization, uh, the tow company organization. I mean, look, they they've got to do um, you know what they needed to do. Who knows what the conversation was in the the truck that occurred or anything like that. But to focus on something, I think that's really great. Is um, the the company um, the the roadside assistance company took this as a, uh, a f- some sort of sign to say, Hey, you know what, we really don't know how to handle this. And by this situation getting brought to light, um, there was some sort of education and advocacy that could happen from that. And you got to be a part of that. And I think that that's so important. And that's really what this whole series is about. Having the the knowledge and the, the tenacity and the motivation to advocate for our rights starts with knowing what they are and what we can do about them. And, you know... Guy's story of kind of thinking outside of the box um, and going to to the press, you know, Patty, your your involvement with um, laying charges and dealing with and then making a, a movie about how to accommodate people with um, you know, difference. I think is such a an interesting spin on this. You know, really, we've focused a lot on, you know, um, the the tribunal and how to file an application and things like that. But I think it's it's refreshing to know that there are other alternatives to consider and to be uh, creative about about getting what we need to thrive and survive as people with difference. Because we're all individual, we all require personalized accommodation, whether it be at school, at work, or just life in general. So, you know, I, I commend all of you um, for, you know, really helping to get these ideas and concepts out there. And I want to thank you um, for bringing your stories to the, to the front Um, to share with other people who are listening or watching um, this series because our purpose here is to provide people um, with the knowledge and power that you're not alone and there are people who are paving the way so that you don't have to face any issues um, or problems in the future with your required accommodation. so i mean i guess before we wrap it up here um you know jason do you have any kind of closing remarks um you know i know that we, you we've been really focusing on um your legal expertise but um you know as a a guide dog owner um, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or anything that you'd like to share with our viewers and listeners
2: I do, and I think I'll just reiterate, not every solution is necessarily quote-unquote legal one. I think that advocacy doesn't just mean legal advocacy, it could mean education, it could mean educating someone who's not understanding why you need your guide dog or not understanding what their legal obligations are. Uh, So I think first and foremost, we should try and educate the public as to what our rights are and, and advocate for ourselves in this situation. And only if that's not working, we have to go legal, obviously. And we have a couple of different tools in our toolkit available to us in Ontario to do that. But I think that the, and, but creativity is always a good thing. And um, that's, yeah, Jason, mm-hmm. that, I
0: so point. agree with you because it's not a question of where you say, "I have these rights. This is my dog. You know, it's the law." And we, you, you need to deal with people in, in a humane way. And if I'd had a chance to talk to the, the the guy with the allergy, but he wouldn't, he didn't come near me after that, I would have said very gently, you and I both, you don't, they both know that you don't have an allergy. So what is really bothering you about the dog in the vehicle? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I would have liked to have done. But, uh, and that's something I didn't mention the police officers, he, he, he's not coming near you, he's staying in his car. And it's
2: right. so you had no choice in that situation, but I think it's always best to try and work with the person to come up with a great solution, if you can, because yep. it makes everyone happy, versus going legal, which oftentimes you're not, you're not going to get a remedy uh, until months, potentially months down the road when the situation's already happened. If you can diffuse it at the time, that's always better.
1: Yeah, I I 100% agree. And, you know, I think um, Guy, once again, has done such a wonderful job at um, finding a solution that's uh, Mm -hmm. given the circumstances come back to square one. But, um, and, you know, one thing I'd like to add as well here, and something that we haven't really spoken about, just as a closing remark, is I think it's important to find collaborative solutions. And I think that's what you were alluding to, um, Jason, that if we can on this, um, you know, together, obviously, in any form of dispute, there's at least two sides, um, and if we can come at this from a, a reasonable and appropriate um, manner, like Guy did, um, I'm sure that uh, the the other student who had the allergies, it sounds like they were extremely cooperative and wanted to be collaborative in finding a solution. Um, I think that's really important, um, you know. We, the, the name of this series is Know Your Rights, which is 100% a legal implication. And we always think human rights, uh, tribunals, this and that, it's all about legal and um, you know, fighting, but I think uh, fighting for our rights, but I think working, um, and I can't remember who said it, but advocacy is also about education. And through education, we can make possibly an even bigger impact as opposed to going through a whole song and dance with a legal proceeding. So once again, thank you all so much for, for joining me on this. episode. it's really important um, for myself um, to get this information out as uh, someone who does have a visual impairment. Um, it's my mission and passion to help people live their optimal life and to be able to live a life without limitation. And obviously CNIB is an amazing resource um, for anybody who needs more information on this. Um, Jason, you also had, um, uh, an institution that you're on the board for and correct me if I'm wrong here. It's called Arch. Is that correct? Yeah, it's actually
2: on, I looked at the list today of, of, of recommended resources. It's on there. It's called Arch Disability Law Center and it's a legal, legal rights advocacy clinic. And they provide free 30 minute consultations, um, with the public who are experiencing, uh, disability rights issues, and from there, they they could take on the case. They might refer the person somewhere else, but that's a good start, and they've got some good online resources as well on their website. So I'd highly recommend Good starting place.
0: Yes. May I add that um, before you get to the legal stage, um, uh, Guide Dog Users of Canada, uh, gduc.ca, is a website address. I'm on the board of of that organization. Um, Talk to us. Get on our friends list, um, and if you have an issue with your guide dog and someone, talk to us because there are thousands of years altogether of, with, with our membership of guide dog work, and people have very creative solutions, most of which do not involve the law. I, I, <laughs> so if you I, I, don't I, have I to get it, there, then then go that route.
2: That that is that the legal way is your. With most things in life, I, I'd say, as a lawyer even, I'll be honest about this. I, I think the legal route is sh- should always be the last resort mm-hmm. because, because it's a zero-sum game. Whereas if you can work something out collaboratively, it could be a win-win situation, which is better for everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. And you get an immediate solution
2: versus months or years down the road. Exactly.
1: That sounds like a win-win-win to me. So guys, um, I'll include or will include those um, links um, to uh, the, the for mentioned um, resources for you guys in the description somewhere around um, this podcast. And as always, guys, um, it's important to know your rights. And this is all about paving the way for change. So until the next time, we'll see you then.
0: For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.